Welcome to the Park City Podcast, a podcast created by Park City Church to discuss who God is and how he is at work in our lives. I'm your host, David Morelli. Welcome back to the Park City Podcast. I'm David Morelli, and as always, I'm joined by my friend Phil Schomber. Phil, to give you a break from the National Day of whatever openers that we've been doing, we'll switch things up a little bit for this week. Where is your favorite place to go in the whole world? It could be somewhere you've been and you know you might love it for a specific reason or maybe somewhere that you'd really like to visit at some point in your life. What's that place? Well, I might have to answer this in in two ways. One, just in terms of day-to-day life, I love uh, going to coffee shops. There is a particular place in Janesville that I frequent. Uh, It's just a great place for me to go study, maybe do some writing. Um, So that's one of my favorite places um, just, you know, in sort of normal everyday life. But in terms of places I've gone to that that I've really loved, um, Jenny and I have taken a couple vacations uh, in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona area. Um, And those have probably been my favorite vacations. Uh, The scenery obviously is beautiful. Uh, you can go hiking uh, if you're so inclined. Not that I was ever so inclined, but in theory you could if, <laughs> if that's the kind of thing that you like to do. Uh, there's some great shops in Old Scottsdale. Uh, there's historical places like Taliesin West. Um, you can golf. Uh, just lots of things to do, and you can always just sit by the pool uh, if you don't want to do particularly a whole lot for the day. So just a, a good mix of things. Uh, so, again, those have been – that was probably my favorite vacation. So that would, if not be my favorite place, it's got to rank up there pretty high. Yeah. For me, uh, we would take vacations out to California every so often, uh, as a family growing up. And my parents actually lived in the central coast area, uh, for a few years after they were married. I was actually born out there, only lived there for the first year of my life though. Uh, so don't remember any of that, of course, but we would go back and so have lots of memories out there. Uh, and of course, just a beautiful area. You've got the ocean and hiking and uh, good food and, and, and all of that. So um, special memories and things. So that's always a favorite place to visit. Uh, but I, I am into hiking. So any sort of uh, the national parks that have that, uh, I love those kinds of places. When we were, when my wife and I were over in um, France working with crew, we actually were able to take a trip over to Switzerland for a weekend and did some hiking in the Alps there. And that was beautiful. Um, just the kind of, you know, that experience when you're just standing in mountains and just kind of in awe of beauty. Uh, it was, it was one of those where you weren't thinking about the lungs and, and legs burning from, uh, climbing thousands of feet and that little oxygen, <laughs> uh, which is perfect. That's exactly what you want. And I, uh, so places like that are always, uh, exciting and restful. And, and I love getting the chance to visit them, uh, when, when time and, and money, uh, allows as well. Well, we'll, uh, get into our conversation today. Uh, so last week we were looking at Romans 6 and talking about how we are free from bondage to sin. And so sin still has power in our lives and that we still experience temptation to sin, uh, but it no longer has authority over us. We are no longer under its dominion. 
And this week we are looking at Romans 7 and discussing the a similar theme again, a freedom from bondage, but this time bondage to the law. So Paul had just wrapped up the argument about freedom from bondage to sin and now continues in chapter 7 here with freedom from bondage to the law. So Phil, why do we need freedom from bondage to the law? Yeah, so as Paul will go on to show, the law has no power to deal with sin. All it has the power to do is condemn us when we fail to live up, up to its demands. So we need something more than that. We need something that will help us overcome sin so that we can uh, once again reflect God's image. And the, and the law can't do that. In fact, as Paul describes later in the chapter, the law actually has the opposite effect in that it has the potential to stimulate more sin. In light of all of that, if we want to escape God's judgment and become who we were intended to be, we need, we need to get out from underneath the sphere of the law. Yeah, exactly. Paul's emphasis on this is to undermine or to underline, excuse me, how many times, how many at the time misunderstood the, the purpose of the law. Their understanding was that God gave the law to counteract the sinful human, human impulse and so in their understanding, salvation was found through adherence to the law. And in one sense, that's true, as Paul will, will spend a little time pointing out later in this chapter. But in order for adherence to the law to actually lead to salvation, that adherence has to be perfect, which no one except for Christ is able to do. So that that same view also leads to what we refer to as a workspace salvation, which we talked about a few weeks ago, which directly contradicts the correct view of justification by faith, which is apart from works. So, and Paul was teaching on that in, in chapters three and four, if you remember. So when Paul argues for the need from, for freedom from bondage to the law, he's talking about that freedom from the belief that salvation is ultimately earned through adherence to the law. And so again, he's kind of continuing in that theme of ultimately arguing for justification uh, by faith and faith alone as well. Right. And again, that creates sort of the tension that comes through in this chapter that on the one hand, Paul does want to make clear that it's possible to misunderstand the law um, and misunderstand its its the potential negative side of it. But at the same time, Paul wants to uphold that it's God's law and therefore is holy. So he's, he's trying to uh, orient us to a correct uh, perspective on what the law is and what our relationship to it should be. Right. Well, he begins the argument then in verse 1 by saying that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Why is that detail significant for his argument then in the first few verses, verses 1 to 6? Yeah, well, we need to escape the sphere of the law's authority, uh, as we've said, and Paul wants to show how that has been accomplished for believers. Paul has already made the point that because Christ served as our representative, in a real sense, his death was our death. In these verses, then, Paul explains that our death with Christ has implications for our rela relationship to the law. Now, as a general principle, the law can only apply to someone while they're alive. Uh, this understanding of the law, to a certain extent, is common sense, but it was also supported by rabbinic teaching. And Paul uses that principle to explain that Christ's death took him out 
of the sphere of the law's authority. And because we have been united with Christ, that is true for us as well. Uh, we've been transferred from the realm of the law, which only has the power to condemn, to the realm of the spirit, where there is not only no condemnation, but also power to overcome sin. Paul then moves from the general principle uh, that the law is only binding, binding on a person while they are alive to a specific biblical example of that in verses 2 and 3. Right. He uses those two verses to talk about marriage as an example. and He's, of course, referring to the, the law given in the Old Testament where the Lord kind of communicates uh, the importance of marriage and how talks about it being a covenant, and so spouses are, are bound in marriage to one another till death do them part, as we, as we say, right? We, uh, for those that are married, you take a vow uh, in your, your wedding ceremony. We talk about that you will be faithful to one another uh, until death do you part. And so you're only bound in marriage, though, of course, as long as both of you are alive. It can't be a marriage if, if one person has passed. And so, uh, again, he's using kind of the analogy there to, to talk about, right, if a, if a spouse leaves their spouse for another person, that would be adultery. But if one spouse passes away and then the other remaining spouse remarries, that is not adultery. That would be, uh, again, that covenant of the first marriage would have been uh, dissolved or they would have been set free from that, so to speak, uh, it, through the death of their first spouse. And then by remarrying, it's just entering into a new marital covenant. Uh, and so Paul's using this example just to emphasize exactly what you were saying, that laws are only binding when we are alive. And then just as you were talking about there in verses four to six, he ties that argument back to our death in Christ, that just as uh, we died to sin as we died with Christ, so in that sense, we died to the law, that the law, its authority uh, was removed as we died with Christ so that we are no longer under the law, but under grace, as, as Paul was talking about last week. Right, and it's possible that Paul chooses this specific example because it allows him to use the imagery of um, no longer how no longer being bound to a, spy, a spouse after death allows you to be joined to another. Uh, it allows uh, Paul to pick up on that to uh, connect it to how, as when we die to the law, we are uh, joined with Christ. And so... Um, it's sort of the dual imagery there that I think he's uh, picking up on. Yeah, that's very interesting then too. So what does Paul mean in verse 5 when he says, are sinful passions aroused by the law? What is he referring to there? Well, in the beginning of that verse, Paul uh, says, when we were in the flesh. So he's describing how our sinful nature interacted with the law. Uh, and essentially, Paul's point is that the sinful nature took advantage of the law to stimulate us to sin. Um, when, when I was in law school, there was a time when I had a bunch of schoolwork, and because I was focused on that, I didn't bother with doing my dishes for a few days. But once the load was lightened, as I was walking uh, back to my apartment uh, one day, I decided, you know, today was the day I was going to catch up on that and get the dishes done. But when I got home, I saw that one of my roommates had put a sign on a pot that said, Phil's science experiment to see how long it takes to grow mold or something like that. Well, what effect did that have on me? Well, I basically said to myself, he's not going to tell me what to do. 
he thinks a couple of days is a long time. How's a whole semester going to feel for him? You know, and uh, as crazy as that sound, you know, that's kind of uh, the attitude that we can sometimes take. Uh, and it's similar with the law in that it produces a similar result because our sinful impulses are already at work by the time uh, we come into to confrontation with the law. So when the law tells us to do something or not to do something, it can often provoke us to do the exact opposite. Uh, we question God's right to tell us what to do or his goodness in keeping something from us, and we decide we're going to do what we want to do. Yeah, in that way, sin kind of takes on a character of rebellion so that we enjoy rebelling against the law. We enjoy rebelling against God. And, and you know, we think about this all the time. The classic example would be when you tell a, a child not to do something, what do they want to do? They want to do the thing that you just told them not to do. Or, you know, oh, they can't have, uh, you know, dessert before dinner. What do they want? Dessert. Uh, but it's not just children, as, as, you know, your example was referring to there. We all do that as adults, too. We we like our independence. We We like getting to think for ourselves. So when someone or God tells us, you know, this is what you should do or shouldn't do, or this is how you ought to live, we kind of go, really? Well, I don't think so. I'm going to do it my own way. And again, that's how what Paul's describing here is sin kind of takes its root in, in, in that sense. And, and we rebel out of a sense of wanting to, to live out our independence or prove our independence, prove that we don't need God or prove that we know better, uh, though, Again, as, as Paul's talked about before, that all leads to death. Uh, that, that's not a productive way of living. That's not going to be beneficial for ourselves, of course. But that's kind of how sin ultimately affects our desires and our wishes, is that they ultimately are contrary to God's. Right, and so it's sort of a double whammy with the law. On the one hand, because of our sinful nature, you know, we, we could never live up to the law perfectly such as to earn um, salvation for ourselves. But not only that, the law actually, uh, surprisingly, sort of because it pokes at our pride, actually makes matters worse for us because it, it prompts us to do uh, even more sin. And, um, you know, so Paul's in, in essence saying, you know, that's exactly why the law doesn't accomplish what some think it does. Exactly. Well, in verse 7, then, Paul asks the question, is the law sinful? And he quickly answers no, but what is his rationale for that answer? Well, essentially, it's what we were just talking about. The problem is sin, not the law. The law comes from God and therefore is holy and good. Now, it had a rev revelatory purpose. It clarifies what is sinful. That's why Paul says in verse 13, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. But the law doesn't have any inherent power to keep us from sinning. And Paul explains that our sinful nature takes advantage of that fact. Uh, he uses the example of the uh, commandment not to covet and says that sin seizes the opportunity and produces every kind of coveting in us. In the presence of the command not to covet, our rebellious sinful nature kicks in and tells us that the commandment is a violation of our freedom, and all of a sudden we desire what we shouldn't. So Paul's point is that the fault lies with our sinful nature, not the law. The law wasn't designed to prevent us from sinning, so it's not the law's fault if it doesn't do something it was never designed to do. 
Right. And we see this, you know, even before the Mosaic law is given in the garden. I mean, the Lord commands Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we all know what happens. They end up doing that. And, you know, so even in that sense, you're seeing how sin has a deceptive, uh, it's able to play up to our, our inflate our pride in that sense, right? What does the serpent say, you know, to Adam and Eve? Well, well, did God, did God really say that? Right. And, oh, well, God just doesn't, you know, want you to do that because then you will be like him. Oh, we like being like God, right? We want to play God. And so, you know, we're seeing that even before the law exists, that, that sin has this way of, of deceiving us, of, of playing to our pride such that, again, we start to question God. We doubt whether God is uh, really knows what's best for us, really knows what's good, and and it just has that effect of, of producing in us a heart that desires to rebel against God. But again, Paul's pointing out that the law wasn't doing that. It wasn't the law's fault. It was sin uh, using the law to, to ultimately lead us to, to rebel or to, to have those desires that would, would uh, tempt us to rebel. Uh, but just as you're saying, the law wasn't designed to prevent us from sin, but to clarify, you know, the giving of, of the law was to communicate about the Lord's holiness and justice and, you know, all these things. There's so much more to the law than just the Ten Commandments. Of course, that's what most of us think of. Uh, but there's, there's what, like 613 laws or something like that that are given throughout the Old Testament. And they convey the Lord's character. They convey... Uh, how the people of God ought to live, uh, such that they're they're living according to how the Lord, you know, designed the world, uh, designed His people to be, how the how the world would work, and so they're not uh, ultimately restrictions on our actions as how we often. That's kind of how we often see them. Of well, it just feels like a uh, a list of don'ts, right? Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and that's how you be a Christian, and that's ultimately not the point of the law either, but to communicate uh, ultimately about the Lord's holiness and justice and righteousness and, and all of those things. Right, and, and it boils down to if uh, you expect the law to do something other than that, uh, you're mistaken because, it, again, it, it doesn't have any inherent power to um, counteract that sinful impulse um, that we have within us um, through our sinful nature. So, again, this is Paul um, wanting to point out sort of the potential n- negative aspects of the law if you don't understand what it was designed for, but at the same time uh, wanting to help us understand that, again, that doesn't mean that the law uh, is evil or sinful in itself. It's just that... Um, if you expect it to do <laughs> what it's not designed to do, um, it's going to uh, get you into trouble. Right, right. So if the law uh, is is actually good, is it the case, or how is it the case then that the, that the law would be responsible for death, as Paul's kind of alluding to? Uh, no, and and Paul explains why that's the case. Uh, the question comes up, of course, because in verse 11, Paul said, the sin through the commandment put me to death. Um, that sounds like the commandment is responsible for our death, or at least partly responsible. 
But Paul reiterates that the problem is sin. Sin, by taking advantage of the law, is the one responsible for our death. Um, Paul then goes on to vividly describe how sin works within us and prevents us from obeying God's commandments and implicitly how the law, though good and holy, doesn't provide a person with the ability to resist those sinful tendencies. Right. Paul says in verse 13, it was sin producing death in me, which again echoes uh, Romans 6, 26, that the wages of sin of death, right? It's again, just re-emphasizing that point that ultimately the fault lies with sin. But Paul, what Paul isn't saying here is that believers have no responsibility or, or aren't held accountable for their sin. So he's not just saying, you know, hey, you can just write it off of God. You can, you know, blame sin. Don't blame me. You know, I'm free. That's not what he's talking about. Um, we, of course, do have individual responsibility. We are, of course, individually held accountable for our sin. Uh, and that's either, you know, ultimately that, uh, that, that penalty is either uh, paid by Christ or by ourselves, um, depending on, on whether we have faith in, in Jesus or not. Um, but again, even in that, you know, we know, as we were discussing last week, that we are still going to experience a temptation to sin, even though we have died to sin uh, as, as we've been united with Christ, that sin's still going to tempt us in our lifetimes. Um, and, and not just tempt us, but we will still sin. Uh, we will still remain imperfect on this side of, of Jesus's second coming. Um, but again, as Paul was exhorting us to, you know, in our conversation last week on Romans 6, we're not to let sin reign in our lives. And so we have to live in that tension where we recognize sin has power in that it is still tempting. We still experience temptation. We still fall short, of course, and, and, and fall into sin. However, it no longer has authority as we were talking about last week. And it's a similar thing here with the law. We're no, we're no longer under the law but that's also also not to say that we ought to just ignore it completely and live our lives as though there's no moral obligation or, or anything of that matter, right? Right, and, and really Paul's discussion here sets the stage for uh, what he's going to talk about in chapter 8. You know, in chapter 6, you know, he says that we died to sin um, and now live uh, for God. Um, but given all that he said about sin, you know, how is it that we are going to uh, be able to live for God? Um, is it the law? Well, Paul's just explained why the law doesn't have any inherent power to help us to not sin. So, uh, you know, what are we to do? Uh, how is it that we're, we're going to be able to live uh, for God and, 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 and overcome sin? Well, in chapter 8, he's going to talk about uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers. So, yes, exactly. We're, we're called to overcome sin. Uh, we can't do that on our own. We can't look to the law to do that. Um, and that's exactly why we need the Holy Spirit uh, to work within us um, to, 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 to be making that uh, death to sin a reality. Yeah, and that's what Paul was alluding to in, in verse 6 of chapter 7 here, where he says, But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. And again, just as you alluded to, that's what we will be discussing next week. Uh, so before we, we give anything away, 
uh, we'll uh, we'll pause the discussion here on uh, freedom from bondage to the law. And again, next week we'll be looking at the entirety of chapter eight, which does talk about the Holy Spirit's role in uh, producing in us an assurance of salvation and again a new way of the Spirit, the Spirit-filled life. Uh, what that looks like in the role in, in the excuse me in the life of a believer. Um, again, as well as the the massive theme of assurance of eternal life with God. So please join us next week for that discussion. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Park City Podcast. We hope this resource helps you to see and savor God's goodness, beauty, and grace in your life. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.parkcitychurch.com. Dot net. Once again, thanks for listening.